Hi, you're listening to the Zoe Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Zoe Fellowship exists to have fellowship with God and with one another and to extend that fellowship to others through the work of Jesus Christ. This week's sermon is from Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, and is preached by Pastor Paul Hong. Zoe Fellowship is gathering for outdoor services under the guidelines and restrictions of the CDC and Richardson County. Join us in the parking lot of Korean World Mission Baptist Church at 1 p.m. on Sundays. Sorry about that. Genesis chapter 20. It's also written out in your, uh, in your chubo. Uh, we'll read from verse 1, and we're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 18. So starting in verse 1, Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And and Abraham said of, of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander away or wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of the Lord. So you guys, um, I imagine you know uh, Superman, who Superman is. Uh, Superman, way back in his original comic book, uh, Action Comics number one in 1938, he uh, was only strong enough to pick up a car. He could leap about one-eighth of a mile. 
Uh, he could outrun an express train, and he was mostly bulletproof. That was the extent of his power. He is not the Superman we know today. And then, as what became known as the golden age of comics kind of progressed, Superman's powers increased dramatically. Uh, Superman started flying uh, in the early 1940s, and then he would develop super hearing, x-ray vision, telescopic vision, enhanced strength. And then by the end of the era, he had officially gotten heat vision, where he would, you know, the lasers out of his eyes, right? And then he, he could withstand an atomic blast and then fly faster than light. And so the Superman we know today is super, super strong, right? Uh, I have a list of his powers here that I think are the most recent list because he just keeps gaining new ones, apparently. He has super strength, he has super stamina, he is invulnerable except to kryptonite and magic, uh, extreme longevity, uh, enhanced mental processes including an eidetic memory and genius level intellect. Superman's vision consists of x-ray vision, heat vision, telescopic vision, microscopic vision, and he can also perceive the entire electromagnetic spectrum and various other forms of energy. He has other enhanced physical senses like smell and touch and taste. Uh, he has precise muscle control and vocal control. Um, he has super breath, which means like he could freeze stuff with his breath if he blew hard enough on it. Uh, and then these last two I didn't know he had, super ventriloquism. I don't... I don't, like, I, I don't know. And a super hypnosis. I had no idea he could hypnotize people. That's, that's such a weird thing. But those are new, I guess. But the, the point of listing out all these superpowers is really to show the fact that clearly Superman has just become way too strong to the points where story writers now have to like create new villains and even give villains more superpowers and armies and aliens coming from outer space to try and defeat Superman because he just, he's just undefeatable. He's unstoppable. He's just too, too strong. And I bring all that up because I realize looking at Superman and how strong he's getting is really showing, or is a display at least, an illustration of how God's plans are unstoppable, just as Superman is, right? And the main point of today's sermon, and, and the last few weeks I've been doing that later, but I have it right up front for you guys here today. The main point of today's sermon is this, that God's purposes will come to pass through his sovereign grace, and nothing will stop him, even our own sin. God's purposes will come to pass through his sovereign grace, and nothing will stop him, even our own sin. And so much like Superman, God's purposes, his plans, his, his will is totally unstoppable. And even when we think our sin is going to get in the way of his plans, even those things, even those sins cannot stop God's plans. And we see that illustrated in today's story today. And so if, today I have another four observations for you in today's text. And then from then we're, we'll go into just uh, some applications, the take-home application. Okay? So the first observation for today is this, that Abraham, again, fails to protect his wife from a foreign king. Okay? Abraham, again, fails to protect his wife again from a foreign king. This is verses 1 and 2, right? After the events of Sodom and Gomorrah from last week, Abraham goes south again towards the Negev. If you guys remember where Negev is, it is like right on the borderline of Egypt. And he sojourns in a place called Gerar. And so there he again tells his wife to tell the same lie he told the last time when they uh, went south towards Egypt to tell people that he is actually Abraham's sister, not his wife. 
and what we see here is from verse 11, Abraham clearly fears for his life again, right? Over and against his, his, uh, the purity and dignity and life of his own wife, right? He fears for his own life more than those things. And then on top of that, what we see because of what we learned from last week, the last, uh, last two chapters, God had promised Sarah that she would have offspring the next, the following year. But one year about one year later, Sarah would finally have Isaac, the son that they have been praying for, waiting for, for decades. And so even that becomes in jeopardy because of Abraham's little plan to save his own life. He, his actions jeopardize the promise of his son yet again. And then we have the king of Gerar, right? Abimelech, whose name means my father is king, and he takes Sarah into his harem. He's a king, so he probably has many, many wives, and Sarah is just included into his harem of wives, right? And so what Abraham's cowardice here, yet again, illustrates is that people, again, are super complicated, right, and really nuanced. People are not just one thing for the rest of their lives. Much like Abraham, in the New Testament, Abraham is, is shown to be sort of a hero of faith. And we see that clearly in these past few weeks that we've been studying this, this, uh, this story arc in Genesis. We see Abraham to be a great man of faith. He puts his faith in God. He obeys. He leaves his homeland. He rescues Lot. He, he just conquers all these kings. And he does all these amazing things in faith in God. But he also has really, really bad moments, just like here and just like uh, a few chapters ago where he does the exact same thing, where he sells his wife to Pharaoh, right, in Egypt. And he has really, really low points. And, it is, and we can relate to this, I'm sure, that we've had really, really high points and that we've had really, really low points. But the point in all of this, of course, is that God is faithful to Abraham nonetheless. He is God's chosen man of faith. The second observation that I have here is that God saves Abimelech from his own judgment. This is in verses 3 uh, to verse 7. God saves Abimelech from his own judgment. So after Abimelech takes Sarah, he's warned by God in a dream that Abraham has deceived him about Sarah's relationship with him. She is indeed Abraham's wife, right? Not just his sister. And this is fascinating because here's a foreign king. He is not uh, one of God's chosen, and yet God appears to him in a dream, which illustrates God's uh, common grace, right? He can, whatever he wills, he can appear to anybody at any time, unbeliever or believer, as long as he uh, wills it. And then what we see from this passage is Abimelech being a king, being, being able to do anything that he wants. Uh, he has every intention to have sexual intercourse with Sarah, right? He says, I have not approached her, right? Right? I did this in the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands. And so Abimelech, he, he claims this innocence. He claims innocence because he did not know the nature of Abraham and Sarah's relationship. And what the great irony here in all this, of course, is that this root word for integrity that, that uh, Abimelech uses is actually the same root word for back when Ab uh, God calls Abraham to walk before him blamelessly. This idea of being blameless means to have integrity. And so what this is showing is Abimelech, this foreign king, this non-chosen of God, is actually more righteous, right? Has more integrity than Abraham does. Abraham has not walked blamelessly in front of or before the Lord. And it shows that Abimelech is more righteous than even God's chosen, right? 
And then the Lord, he confirms Abimelech's innocence. He knows, right? But the Lord knows because he himself is the one who kept Abimelech from sinning against him. If you were to skip ahead to the end of Genesis, you would read the story about Joseph and his brothers. You guys might have heard of Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, right? Um, but basically, in this story, Joseph's brothers sell Joseph into slavery, but it ends up with Joseph becoming this high authority in the land of Egypt. And, what, and, and Joseph's brothers comes, back, comes to him in a, during a famine to kind of get food from him. And he realizes in that moment that, again, telling his brothers, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Because through this evil of his brothers, God preserves the Hebrew people from starving and dying through a famine, right? And the reason why I bring that up is we can only imagine, right, how many times God has kept us from sinning against him in his mercy towards us. Like, he may not have appeared to us in a dream and told us that he has kept us from sinning against him like he did with Abimelech, but we can only assume that God has done that in his mercy, in his grace, in his wisdom and justice. He has kept us from sinning against him, which we should worship him for. And at the same time, even the evil that we do, the sin that we commit against the Lord, God can use for his purposes. And this is not to excuse uh, for you to do evil or that any evil that we do do is, uh, is justifiable, right? It simply means that even in our sin, God is sovereignly and wisely and justly working out his plans of redemption for his glory and our good. And it means that we don't need to despair and we do not need to lose hope, even when we fall into sin, just like Abraham does over and over again. And that's good news. Now the Lord, in response to all this, uh, instructs Abimelech, right? He gives him some instruction to return Sarah back to Abraham. Otherwise, he and his household will die. And his household can be considered his, obviously, his family, but also even the nation itself. And so he also tells Abimelech that Abraham is a prophet and will pray for him. And if he does pray for him, then he'll live. Now, you can imagine Abraham's re- react, or sorry, Abimelech's reaction to this. Abraham, this guy who just lied to me and sold me his wife, is a prophet. Like, imagine that. Like, the credibility Abraham must have lost in the light, in light of uh, his actions, right? In Abimelech's eyes. Like, it must be like, like, what? This guy that just sold me his wife? He's a prophet? And you expect him to pray for me? And we think, of the, we think that way all the time. Like, this is one of the biggest reasons why people cite their, um, uh, their reluctance about the Christian religion, right? Because they just see hypocrites, especially in leadership. And, this is, and so we see the same kind of thing happen here with Abimelech and Abraham. He sees Abraham as a hypocrite, and yet still he's called by God. He is a prophet, and that if you pray for him, and that he will live. The third observation, Abimelech confronts Abraham about his deception. This is verses 8 through verses uh, 13. Much like Abraham, Abimelech uh, wakes up the next morning and he obeys the Lord, right? Abraham has done this many times. He, the Lord approaches him in some sort of vision, dream, whatever the case is, and he wakes up the next morning and he's like, okay, 
I'm doing it. Like right after, he goes and he obeys whatever instruction the Lord had given him. Given him. And yet again, we're supposed to see Abimelech in this ironic foil to Abraham, saying this foreign king who does not even know this God is more righteous and is obeying the Lord when Abraham is not. And so Abimelech calls on Abraham, confronts him about his deception, how he had almost sinned against the Lord and jeopardized his household and his nation because of Abimelech's deception. And so when Abimelech asks Abraham why he did these things, right? Abraham lays out his heart before him. He says he thought that the land did not fear God. And so he was fearful of his own life, right? He thought that he would kill him for his wife. And yet again, another great irony in this is that in Abraham trying to preserve his own life, he shows that he is the one who does not fear God. If he had truly feared God, then he would not have worried about losing his life. He also then tries to justify his deception, right? Abraham, um, he, he says that technically she is my sister. She's, she's a sister from another mother, but she became my wife. But I didn't lie to you, right? He's justifying the deception that he had towards Abimelech in a desperate attempt to save some face. And then he also uses language that echoes Eden. He blames God. He says, God caused me to wander from my father's house. And I said to her, this is the kindness that you must do me. At every place to which we come, say to me, he is my brother. Right? So he uses this blame for God. Now, one thing that I see here uh, that a commentator noted that, that I thought was really interesting was this, that when Abraham says there is no fear of God at all in this place, right? Um, this is verse 11, right? He says there's no fear of God in all this place. The word that he uses here for God is not the personal name of God that Abraham typically uses. He typically uses the word Adonai or Yahweh uh, in, when he's talking about God or to God. But here, to this king, he does not call him Yahweh or Adonai, this personal, intimate relationship God that he has. He uses the pagan or secular term Elohim, which could mean any God, really. It could be Abimelech's God for all, all he knows. But the point here is that because he did not want to offend Abimelech and started using a secular pagan term for God, it actually shows and reveals that uh, Abraham was not wanting to offend him and in so has kind of tried to distance his, his association from God because of his just trying to save face, right? And so not only here in this story has, has Abraham abandoned his wife to this foreign king, but because of this foreign king, he also has abandoned his God. That, that hospitality that he extended last week, right, to the Lord when he appeared to him, just kind of seems broken now. There's no more hospitality. Now there's a disassociate, this distancing from God. And what this really shows is this is possibly the lowest point of Abraham's spiritual life. By distant, abandoning God, distancing himself from God, disassociating with this God who has given him these magnificent promises. And this is what happens. This is what is revealed when, uh, when, is, when Abimelech confronts Abraham about his deception. Now, the final observation I have is this, that God heals Abraham, or sorry, God heals Abimelech and his household through Abraham's intercession, right? God heals Abimelech and his household through Abraham's intercession. So Abimelech gives Abraham many possessions and riches and also returns Sarah to him. Which is fascinating, right? Again, Abraham, after completely 
doing wrong in the eyes of the Lord, not like walking in not blamelessness, right? Not blamelessly before the Lord. He somehow comes out of it a rich man, which is exactly what happened in Egypt as well. He comes out of it a rich man with his wife back. And on top of that, Abimelech, in apparently great hospitality, allows Abraham to dwell in his land wherever he pleases. This kind of should kind of bring up, conjure up images of when Abraham, in order to not have conflict with his nephew Lot, uh, allowed Lot to choose the, his pick of the land, which he ended up choosing, right, Sodom. And it's the same sort of hospitality, same sort of choice that is given to Abraham. Abimelech also then, he tells Sarah that he has given her brother, which is really interesting that he uses the brother term and not the husband term here, right? He, it's kind of a diss at him. He gives her brother a thousand pieces of silver absolving her of any wrongdoing, right? This is a kind of maybe an ancient cultural practice that we don't really understand quite yet. But what it does seem to indicate is that uh, Abimelech wanted to make sure that Sarah did no wrongdoing, that she had nothing to do with w this transaction, right? And he gave it to Abraham to show that she has been vindicated, it should be vindicated in the eyes of everyone. Which is, again, another irony that Abimelech, this foreign king, shows more concern about the dignity and purity of Sarah than, his own, than her own husband, Abraham. And so in, in getting Sarah back from Abimelech, Abraham then intercedes on behalf of Abimelech, just as the Lord had said he would. And through the intercession, God heals Abimelech uh, and his household of the barrenness that God had struck him and his household with when he had taken Sarah into his harem, right? And that's this story of this story between Abimelech and Abraham, right? And yet again, the main idea of this whole passage, of these observations that we can conclude, uh, conclude with is this, that God's purposes will come to pass through his sovereign grace and nothing will stop him, even our own sin. So some take-home ideas. I have two main applications, but under the applications are like sub-applications, okay? So here are the two main applications. The first one is this. In light of this story, we must remain vigilant so we do not fall into our former life of rebellion against God. We must remain vigilant so we do not fall into our former life of rebellion against God. Now, how do we do this? Now, these are the two ways that you can do this. First of all, we must pray. It's very simple, I think. We, ha we have to pray. We have to engage God. Um, what we see here is when, when Abraham is praying for Abimelech even, right, is kind of this idea even that the Lord gives us in the, uh, the Lord's prayer. That in the Lord's Prayer, when we pray, lead us not into temptation. We should be praying that often in all of our prayers. In everything that's in the Lord's, uh, the Lord's Prayer, especially this idea of lead us not into temptation. Because the reality is we are surrounded by sin and death and darkness, and it is easy to fall back into that. And for those of us who continue always to cycle back, backslide, back into the same sins that we swore we would never do again, that is a great prayer to have. And we need to engage the Lord and connect with him, have intimacy and relationship with him, and not disassociate ourselves with him when we fall into prayer or when we fall into sin and darkness again. The second thing that we can do to remain vigilant so we don't fall back into our former life of rebellion is this, that we have to confront sin in our own lives and, and in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to confront sin in our own lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. As a Christian... I imagine that you probably 
know your sins better than anybody else does, other than God himself, right? As a Christian, you probably know that your weaknesses, you know your triggers, you know the things, the, the circumstances and environments that will make you fall into fear and sin again, just like Abraham. Every time Abraham seems to be, uh, go, towards, go south towards Egypt, he falls into the same fear of losing his life and ends up abandoning his wife and, and sinning against the Lord, right? So in the same way, we, we know what our sins are, right? But the reality also is this. We also don't know all our sins. Right? We don't know all our weaknesses. And there's no way we can really know unless we have people who, are, who know us well enough, right, to know things about us that we don't know about ourselves. They offer a different perspective into our lives when we have fellowship and intimacy with people. And this is why church membership is so important, why you take your church membership seriously, why you look at the Zoe Fellowship Covenant that you signed year, I guess I've been years ago, and you see what kind of expectations are on you in relationship with other church members in particular, that you are able to confront one another in sin. It's, it's really good if you have somebody really close to you who knows you well enough to do that, right? But I would also, I would also I'll remind you that in signing that covenant and in being a Christian, what you're also doing is you're allowing people, you're giving permission to look into your life, even people who may not know you as well, right, to be able to come to you and confront you about sin. And why is it important that you're confronted with sin? It's because when you sin, what happens is you wound your conscience a little bit, okay? You have this capacity that God has given you called your conscience, and it's the thing that tells you that something is wrong or something is right. And now, it's not perfect. It has to be adjusted and calibrated through God's word, right? But when you do something that goes against your conscience and against God's word, it wounds your conscience and lets you, and it meaning that imagine that like you, you fall into sin and then you're like, okay, that was wrong. I'm not going to do that again. But then you fall into it again for whatever reason. And then you, sit, you go through that whole process again. But then if you've been in this situation before, you know and you realize more and more that you, that, that uh, warning in your, in your mind that happens when it tells you that you're never going to do it again, it starts to disappear a little bit. Soon you start accepting the fact, you know what, maybe I'm just this person who, 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 will, be, who will struggle with this sin for the rest of my life. Maybe that's the person I am. And that's you having wounded your conscience to the point that it's dead. And that it needs to be revived again. And so this is why it's so important that you have people who are willing and ready to have uncomfortable conversations with you, to confront you about sin in your life, so that your conscience remains pure, exercised, and works well to God's glory so you can obey his commandments and reveal his glory to others in your life. All right? So we must remain vigilant so we do not fall back into our former life of rebellion against God. Second application. We must respond in faith and obedience to God's salvation. We must respond in faith and obedience to God's salvation. If you haven't noticed, this application, I want to say, has probably appeared in almost every single one of my sermons in Genesis, or at least when we've started this story arc in Genesis. Faith and obedience is a, is a major, if not the biggest theme that we see in Abraham's story arc. The first thing he does is he believes in God's word, and he obeys. He leaves his homeland, right? To go, go to the land that I am about to show you. And this is, this is the whole point. But in this story, it just happens to be Abimelech who is the one who has faith and obedience. 
Now, Abimelech isn't God's chosen people, and yet, but this is out of God's mercy towards uh, people who are continually rebelling against him and opening their eyes to see the sin against God. But it, it does illustrate the same idea that Abraham illustrates, that we must respond in faith and obedience to God's salvation. Now, here's the sub-application sub that I want you guys to see. The way that you can respond in faith and obedience to God's salvation that's illustrated in this passage is this. We must trust in God's plan of redemption and not our own plans of redemption. We have to trust in God's plan of redemption and not in our own plans of redemption. What I mean by that is this. I imagine that when you've sinned, when you've fallen short of God's glory, when you did something that you know you weren't supposed to do, that you've, you've tried to make up for it somehow. You thought that maybe going to church would kind of cleanse you, make you feel better about it. Maybe you just worked harder. Maybe you just tried to be a better person. Just swore you wouldn't do it again, but you'll do it this time. You have made your own plans of redemption. Just, like, just as Abraham, in his fear, made this plan with Sarah, right? Saying that, uh, just say you're my sister. Don't bring up the wife thing. Don't bring up that we're married. Hide that part so that I can live. In the same way that Abraham fails, by planning his own redemption, right? We do the same things when we sin. We try to make up for our own sin by planning out, by having control of our own lives and our own salvation. If I do this, then God will be okay. God will be okay with me. We'll be good if I just do these things, this list of things. I'll, read my, I'll do my devotional next tomorrow morning. I'll get up early. I'll do something that just makes up for it, right? But can I say, your plans of redemption suck, they are not good plans of redemption. It is a lot of work. You will be devastated when you realize that it doesn't work and it never paid it off, paid off that plan of, or that paid off that uh, debt of sin that you have incurred against God. What you need is a good plan, God's plan of redemption. And his plan of redemption involves, involve, involves forgiveness of your sin through the blood of his son. He sent his son to die on your behalf, to take the punishment you deserve. On the cross, he died a common criminal. He's the creator of the universe. He's the just judge of every living thing. And he dies on a cross. He is the one who is judged instead of us. But three days later, God vindicates him, right? Saying everything he said and did is true, and he raises him up from the dead. And so we, in response to this good news, we have to believe, we have to trust and we have to obey his commandments to love one another, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's why we have to respond in faith and obedience to God's plan of redemption, not ours. His plan is much, much better. And what this all really, again, shows is that God is pushing his purpose, his plans through history, right? Through this, right? Through saving Sarah yet again from this, uh, this king, this foreign king Abimelech through warning Abimelech of this sin that he was about to incur against the Lord, by getting Abraham to pray and intercede on behalf of Abimelech. What God has done, he has preserved the offspring of Sarah, right? And through Sarah, this offspring, Isaac will come, and we'll see the genealogy in Matthew in December, and we'll see how it shows that it leads to the one offspring that God has promised, Christ himself. Where through Christ, when we put our faith in him, we become also sons of Abraham, the man of faith. Let me pray for us.